We do apologise for the background crackle on the parts of this recording. This was due to a fault on the recording machine on which the tape was originally recorded. However, we have processed the recording digitally to minimise these effects, and we hope that they don't spoil your enjoyment of this very relevant message by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fifth chapter and the sixth verse. The sixth verse in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The apostle in referring to these things is referring, of course, to the things which he has just been mentioning. For instance, in the fifth verse, where we read this, For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. He's also referring to the things which he's been mentioning in verses even before that, where he says, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. The Apostle's primary object here, of course, is, as we've been seeing, to exhort these Ephesian Christians to live the Christian life truly. He's impressing upon them the importance of carrying that down to the very smallest detail of their life. But we see that the Apostle can't handle even a question like that without at once relating it to certain great general fundamental principles. In other words, he's not interested only in their, doc in, in their conduct as such, conduct and morality, qua conduct and morality. He's got a, a larger and a bigger interest. And this is, of course, characteristic of the whole Christian message. It takes everything that we do in this life and in this world and everything that happens to us and puts it into an eternal context. And that is what the Apostle is doing here. In other words, his case is that our conduct and our behavior in this world is important for these three great eternal reasons. The first is, our conduct is important because it affects our relationship to God. Not simply our relationship, as it were, to ourselves. Not simply our relationship to other people. That comes in, that is involved. But the whole emphasis of the Bible is that our conduct and behavior is important because it affects our relationship to the eternal and the everlasting God himself. 
The second principle is this, that there are only two possibilities with regard to that relationship to God. And he's already been mentioning, here are the only two possible positions. We are all of us either in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We either have this inheritance and a place and a portion in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Or else, we are outside that kingdom. And if we are outside that kingdom, we are under the wrath of God. That's what he's saying here. It's one or the other. We are either there as inheritors of that kingdom, or else, he says, the wrath of God is upon us as children of disobedience. Now, that is why the apostle is so concerned that these Ephesians should have no doubt in their minds as to this question of conduct and the importance of conduct. Their conduct is determining their relationship to God, and it's one of those two. But then here's a third principle, which is this. That this relationship of ours to God is something that not only applies to time, but also to eternity. It is important not only for the sake of our life and our happiness while we are in this world. It is that which determines our eternal, our everlasting, our endless condition of either happiness or else intense misery and unhappiness. Now there are the three big principles which he brings out at this point as he is handling this question of the ordinary life and behavior and conduct of these Christian people. Now, the world is as it is at this present moment. And the world goes on living as it is living at this present moment. Simply because it doesn't realize those three fundamental truths. We are meeting together on Remembrance Sunday. That makes us think of the fact that we've already had two world wars in this present century. A day of grief, a day of mourning, a day when people look back to loved ones whose lives were lost in those two skirmishes, those bloody skirmishes. But the question arises, why have there been such wars? Why is the whole world situation as it is this morning? Why are we living in a world that is filled with problems and perplexities and with tragedy? Well, I say the answer is just this. The world doesn't realize those three principles which the Apostle here enunciates. It's not concerned about its relationship to God. It doesn't realize that every human being is in one or the other of those two positions in that relationship either in his kingdom or else outside it and under his wrath. It doesn't realize that beyond this life and the grave is another life, that we go on and go on endlessly, eternally, in one of two positions, either one of bliss, unspeakable, or suffering and agony, which even baffles the imagination. 
But the question that arises therefore is, why is it that the world does not realize this? What is it that accounts for the fact that men and women speaking generally and in the mass and in the main are so clearly and patently completely unaware of these three great truths and don't realize them? Well, it is because the apostle answers that question in this sixth verse of this fifth chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians that I'm calling your attention to it this morning. And I would like to know if any of you can suggest a more appropriate text for remembrance or armistice Sunday. It comes in the natural course of our consideration of this great epistle. And I'm emphasizing this because I would emphasize that there is nothing that is so amazing about the scripture as the way in which it is always contemporary and always has the perfect and the last word to say on every human occasion and in every conceivable human situation. Very well then, here is the question. Why does the world not realize these three great truths? The apostle says that the first answer is this. Because it is being deceived by vain words. Let no man deceive you with vain words. Now then, this is the thing which we need to understand, it seems to me, at this present hour. Man is as he is in sin, and the world is as it is, and undergoes all these agonies and turmoils. For one reason only, and that is because it is being deceived. According to the Bible, that is the essence of the human tragedy, the tragedy of the world. Everything against which we are battling, all our troubles and problems, I say, have resulted from one thing. And that is, that man at the beginning was a fool, deceived, beguiled by Satan. To be strictly accurate and to be scriptural, I should say that Eve was, the woman was. As the serpent beguiled Eve, says this same apostle in his second epistle to the Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this is the whole case of the Bible. The Bible is a book about life. It's a book about this world. It's a book about all our tragedies and problems. And it says, here is the explanation of it all. That man, at the very beginning, allowed himself to be deceived. By Satan. Satan was the deceiver from the beginning. Those are the terms that are used about him. His subtlety. His deceitfulness. His cleverness. And he came as an angel of light. And he's continued to do so ever since. And he deceives men and women. Here's a term that is used so often about sin. The deceitfulness of sin. That is the most horrible thing about it. The way in which it deceives us and invades us into its positions, and we're not aware of it. The deceitfulness of sin, it comes, and thus with its vain words, it deceives us. Well, now, this morning, I'm particularly anxious to show you that these words were never more true than they are at this present hour. Let us look at the situation. Modern man glories above everything else in what he calls his knowledge his learning, his understanding. He believes that he rarely has 
understood life. And that he has a true view of life. And in that connection. There is nothing perhaps on which the modern man, the typical modern man, so prides himself and congratulates himself as on the way in which he has emancipated himself from religion. Religion, he says, is of course a kind of superstition, belongs to the infancy of the race, characteristic of men in his primitive condition. And the accompaniments, the concomitants of religion always have been the spirit of fear, the spirit of slavery, men and a religion is the creature of taboos and fears, which have all been imposed upon him. But now the modern man feels that he's grown up, and he's grown out of all that, he's shaken off all this incubus, he's got rid of these taboos, he's got a scientific, healthy, manly view of life, he uses his intelligence and his learning. And thus, I say, he congratulates himself on the emancipation which he has achieved. What is the result of this? Well, the result of this is that he derides and dismisses the old standards, especially the old moral standards, and laughs at them and ridicules them. Things which were regarded by everybody a hundred years ago and even more recently than that as sin beyond any question. Modern man not only does them, but he defends them. Indeed, he goes beyond defending them. He advocates them. He actually goes as far as to say this, that a man who doesn't do these things is a man who's to be pitied. He's still infantile. He's still subject to the taboos of religion. He's still mid-Victorian in his outlook. That's a common way of putting it. He is a creature who is really underdeveloped. He hasn't grown up to full maturity. This, of course, people in the past used to regard these things as wrong, and they used to regard them as sin, and they were not mentioned, and these things were taboo. But, of course, they say by now we've discovered, with our researches and our scientific development in particular, that uh, man is a creature who's been made up and constituted in a certain way, and uh, what uh, he should really do is to give expression to, give evidence of these powers and propensities and faculties that are within him. So they say, and this is their deduction, what used to be called sin is really nothing but a man expressing himself, really living a full life, not living a kind of mutilated, truncated life as our forefathers did, but really a man coming to his own and living and expressing himself and giving evidence of that which rarely does belong to him and is part and parcel of him. In other words, everything today is regarded as natural. And we are told more and more that we mustn't uh, distinguish between things as being natural and unnatural. Everything is natural. Everything a man does is ultimately natural. And therefore I say the final conclusion is that not to be exercising or to be giving expression to these natural instincts and powers that we have, well, is, if there is such a thing, sinful. The greatest sin of today is not to express yourself, not to be natural. 
You see, we have reached a position which is almost the exact opposite of that which obtained, shall I say, about a hundred years ago. Now, I'm analyzing all this because it is my object to show that it is this outlook and mentality that is responsible for all our major troubles and indeed our minor troubles at the same time. Because this outlook, this approach, leads to certain results. And here are some of them. There is this new tendency in life to explain what used to be called sin in terms of variations of the normal or in terms of disease. Now the whole idea today is that there is no such thing really as sin. And that we mustn't say that people who do certain things are sinners and are sinful. No, no, we are told, you, you, must, you must wait a moment and you must recognize that we are not all identical. And uh, that a man does what he does because that's his makeup. Fundamentally, of course, we're all the same. But when you come to look at us in detail, we're not all the same. There are variations in temperament. One man's very active, another man is rather lethargic. One is uh, mercurial and one is phlegmatic. They're both men and they're essentially they're made up in the same way. But there are these variations within the normal. And you see, this kind of distinction is being pressed all along the line. One man is more intelligent than another. One is more emotional than another. So one is more highly sexed than another. Now, they say, it's all right, wait a minute, the man was born like that. And therefore, a man is just to express himself. And if he doesn't express himself, he is guilty of violating his own being and personality. Now they say, you mustn't say that a man who does certain things is a sinner. You've got to realize that he's made like that. You mustn't say that what he's doing is unnatural. It's natural for him. That's how he's constituted. The balance of his ductless glands is such that that is what is natural for him. Now you mustn't say that that man is a sinner. You mustn't say that that man is guilty of a crime. No, no, the man's born like that and therefore he behaves like that. And so, you see, the whole notion of sin has disappeared entirely. Or, as I say, sometimes they put it not so much in variations, in terms of variations in the normal, as in terms of disease. And you must have noticed this creeping even into the arguments in the law courts. Now, a man commits a crime. Yes, but the defense is this. He really couldn't help it at that moment. He's in a diseased condition. You mustn't regard this man as a criminal. This man really shouldn't be taken so much to court as taken to a hospital. This is a disease. I could elaborate this at great length, but I mustn't do so this morning. What I'm trying to show you is this, that the whole notion of sin and evil and wrong as over against right and truth is gradually disappearing. And with our modern outlook upon life and our modern ideas, all that was formerly regarded as sin and crime is just to be regarded either, I say, as a variation within the normal makeup or else as an evidence of disease. Now then, what does all this lead to? Well, this in turn, you see, leads to a relaxation 
in the whole notion of discipline. Discipline in the home, discipline in the school, discipline in the whole of life in general. Now the old idea was that you made a child behave himself and that you taught people the three R's, whether they liked them or not, and whether they were interesting or not, but that that was the basis of education, and you drummed the three R's into them. But of course, we no longer believe in that. We believe now that uh, really these problems must be approached psychologically, and uh, the child must be the determiner as to what is to be taught and how he's to be taught it. Everything's to be made nice and interesting. And if he doesn't want to do arithmetic at the moment, well, you tell him a story and so on. And, and thus, you see, the whole idea of discipline and of ordering and of governing is disappearing. I'm not ridiculing the thing. I'm literally stating to you what's happening. This is what is really believed today. And it's being practiced in the home in the school, in connection with work in prisons, and I say, with regard to the whole of life. The notion of discipline is disliked today. It's regarded as wrong. This idea of freedom comes in, and that man must be allowed to express himself, and that there are all these variations. And then, of course, the next step is, and it's quite logical, that the whole idea of punishment is going out. We no longer believe in punishment. Again, in the home, in the school, in connection with crime and misdeeds. You needn't take my word for this. You've just got to read your newspapers. Everybody is becoming increasingly concerned and alarmed about the increase in crime, although I hear that some of the experts are even doubting that and even trying to explain that away. But in any case, how are they proposing to deal with it? Well, they say, we must not only have more prisons, but now we must uh, elaborate and enlarge uh, our means and methods of treating these people psychologically. You don't punish them, you treat them psychologically. You begin to analyze them, you put them through this deep analysis, you discover the hidden springs and motives. They're, they're, they're not criminals. They're not criminals. They're, they're either lacking in balance or else they're actively diseased. So you investigate it entirely from that standpoint. And now you try to rehabilitate them by getting them to read good literature, speaking kindly and nicely to them, and so on. The, uh, the idea of punishment must uh, be abolished, we are told. Now, this has been in practice uh, for some time. It's very interesting to notice the people who have been originally most responsible for this. It's not without significance, I think, that the prime mover in this kind of attitude was the man who was one of the prime movers in the appeasement of Hitler. And still they go on doing it. Though they saw so clearly that it didn't work with Hitler, they still believe it will work with other criminals. But it's all the result of this attitude towards life and towards sin and, and crime in particular. In other words, to sum it up, the whole situation is being regarded from the standpoint of psychology. We are told that words like sin and crime and punishment are ugly words that ought to be banished out of our vocabulary. The answer to all that is the sixth verse in the fifth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Let no man deceive you with empty words. That's exactly what some of these people were trying to say at that time. 
They were trying to explain away what the apostle and the whole Bible describes as sin. They were saying, but you mustn't make a fuss about these things. It's a part of man's life. It's a part of man's being. He's been made like this. There's no harm in this sort of thing. Why not? That those were the vain words. They were saying, look here, you believe in Christ, you're redeemed, that's all right. Don't be concerned about these other and lesser aspects. These are only temporary. Your soul's all right. What's it matter what you do in the body? And so on. Those are the specious, vain, empty words with which some of these Ephesians were being deceived by these false teachers. And as it was true then, it is true today. All this modern talk, all this modern outlook sounds so clever, but it is nothing, I say, but the deceit of Satan. And I demonstrate it like this. Is not all this really offensive even to the natural man's best instincts? Is there not something even in the natural man that is revolting against all this? And yet, you see, this is the thing that is being advocated today. All that I've been talking about, you will see set out at great length in the famous Wolfenden Report. The main argument of the Wolfenden Report is this, that we must no longer talk about certain things as being unnatural. I mean these horrible perversions. They say you mustn't say they're unnatural because they're natural for the men who do them. That's the whole basis of the Wolfenden Report and the movement to legitimize the practice of some of these horrible, foul, unspeakable perversions, even in private. That's the argument behind it, that they're natural for those people. They're variations within the normal or else they're disease. It is the explanation also, what you read in your papers this last week, that the Lord Chamberlain has at last sanctioned the playing of plays that deal with the subject of homosexuality as long as they conform to certain rules. Now then, I say, all this is surely offensive even to the natural men's best and highest instincts. Not only that this argument eventually makes of men a beast and insults him. These views are regarding men as just a collection of ductless glands, just a collection of impulses and forces and instincts. They forget this other thing called the soul and the spirit that is in men. They reduce men either to the level of a beast or indeed even lower than that at times almost to a machine. And you can manipulate men and his personality by putting in extra doses of this or withdrawing a certain amount of that. But finally my argument would be this. There is nothing which shows so clearly that all this is but the deceit of Satan and but empty, vain words as the chaos to which this outlook is leading. Look at the state of the modern world. Look at the state of society. You see, these ideas have been in practice for some time. I've no doubt at all that when future historians come to write the history of this era in which we live, they will come to this conclusion, that the whole cause of our trouble was that unfortunately the authorities have allowed themselves to be influenced by this psychological attitude towards life at the expense of the scriptural view of life. Education, the home, the hospitals, the prisons, the whole of life, I say, is being governed by this false psychological view of men. 
which takes away the idea of man as a being created in the image of God, who is responsible to God and who is to obey God's holy laws, however expressed, all that has been put aside and man is regarded in this new evolutionary psychological manner. Very well, there is the first explanation. The world is as it is on the international level and in the national level and in the groups within the nation. Because man is still being deceived by these vain words that are being put forward by Satan. He puts it, of course, very cleverly as an angel of light. He puts it into the mouths of educationists, sociologists, and all these people. Yes, it sounds so good and so wonderful. It's so nice and so kind. It seems so much better than the old idea of discipline and order and punishment and the division into natural and unnatural and the division into truth and crime. It's plausible. It seems very interesting and attractive, but the only word to describe it, I say, is the word of my text, vain, empty word. That's the first thing, but there's a second thing. The world is as it is, not only because it's thus being deceived, but because it doesn't know the truth about the wrath of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The world doesn't know that. And of course the sophists to whom I've been referring are particularly sarcastic about this notion of the wrath of God. Ah, this of course, that's it, that's so typical of religion. Frightening, alarming, wrath of God. For they say our fathers used to be terrified by that sort of thing. And as the preachers thundered from the pulpit about the wrath of God, they quaked and they trembled, and they decided for Christ and your churches and chapels were full. But it doesn't work with the 20th century man. 20th century man has seen through all that. He's got this new understanding to which I've been referring. There is nothing, I say, that the sophist is so anxious to ridicule and to banish as this notion of the wrath of God. But there is nowhere, surely, where the blindness of modern man is more evident and where he is being deceived by Satan is more obvious then just at this point. What do I mean? I mean this. Look for a moment at the fact of the wrath of God. The fact of it. It is something that is asserted everywhere in the Bible from beginning to end. It is something that was taught and preached by the patriarchs, by the kings, by the prophets by the Lord Jesus Christ himself and by the apostles, every single one of them. If you don't believe in the wrath of God, I have only one thing to say to you. You don't believe in the Bible. You cannot believe the Bible without believing in the wrath of God. If you take that out, well, then it's no longer the Bible. It's what you think. You've made a Bible of your own. It isn't the Bible. It's something else. But let's be clear as to what the wrath of God is. We mustn't think of it like man's wrath. Man's wrath is something terrible and horrible. It's uncontrolled rage, it's temper, it's violence. No, no, it isn't that at all. There's nothing uncontrolled about the wrath of God. 
Do you know what the wrath of God is? It's this. It is his attitude towards evil and sin. It is his displeasure at sin. It is his hatred of sin. It is his settled hatred of sin. The wrath of God is God's declared determination to punish sin. Now, that's not my idea. That's exactly what is taught in the scriptures. The wrath of God, I say, we must understand as the reaction, if you like, of the everlasting and eternal God who is holy and everlasting in his holiness to sin and evil. To that which originated in the devil and which he has feisted upon the human race and brought into the life of the world. God hates it with all the intensity of his divine and eternal being. He can have no dealings with it. And he has revealed it from the very beginning that he is going to punish sin and evil. It is his settled attitude. That is the meaning of the wrath of God. But but now... Here is the vital question. How and when is this wrath manifested? And you notice the word. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Now I'm putting that to you as a question. How and when does this wrath of God come upon the children of disobedience? And here it seems to me is the terrifying relevance of all this to this particular morning. When does the wrath of God come? When and how is it manifested? The first answer to the question is now. In the present. He doesn't say, you see, that the wrath of God shall come upon the children of disobedience. He deliberately uses the present tense. It cometh. It's a continuous present. It includes the future, as I'm going to show you, but it isn't only the future. It includes the present. And it is because the world doesn't understand this, I say, that it is as it is, and it goes on living as it goes on living. The wrath of God is something that comes in the present. How does it come in the present? Well, like this. The moment you sin, you have condemnation of conscience. The moment you sin, at once you feel it. That's a part of the wrath of God against sin. The feeling of remorse, what is it? It's a manifestation of the wrath of God. Then think of this. Think of the sufferings that come from sin. Physical suffering. The so-called mourning after the night before. It's a part of the wrath of God against sin. It's God who's ordained that. You misuse your body, you'll suffer for it. You talk about your pleasure, I remind you of your pain. Physical consequences of sin and evil and wrongdoing. It's a part of the wrath of God. It is the God, you see, who when man sinned, cursed the ground and briars and thorns came up and diseases appeared. That was a part of God's punishment for sin and it's still continuing. You put your finger in the fire and don't squeal when you get the pain and when you've got a sore and it festers. Sin and evil lead to consequences and they're a part of the manifestation of God's wrath. 
and then think of the mental suffering. This remorse, I say. This agony of mind, think of the mental suffering caused to others. Think of the unhappiness in the world this morning because of sin. Think of it in terms of family life. Bitterness, the unhappiness, and the wretchedness. That all come from sin. Think of the confusion in life. The moral muddle and confusion. And all that that involves. Indeed, I can sum it with the word of the Old Testament. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's God who's determined that. A man shan't sin and get away with it. No, no. The way of the transgressor is hard. Or listen to the other one. The word uttered by Moses, you remember, to those two and a half tribes that wanted to settle on the other side of Jordan. He said, if you don't do what you say you're going to do, be sure your sin will find you out. And it does find us out. It may take years, but it always does. Be sure your sin will find you out. But not only that, there is active chastisement. Read your Old Testament. See how God punished individuals. See how he punished nations, even the nation of Israel, his own people. He punished them. He sent them into captivity. He punished kings. He brought them down. God has punished. It's here in history. And in the history of the world in general. But of course it is a doctrine and a truth that is taught explicitly in the New Testament. For instance, at the communion service, there are those words that we read, for this cause many are weak and many are sickly among you, and many sleep. Because some of you people in Corinth, says Paul, haven't examined yourselves before coming to the communion table. Some of you are ill, some of you are sick, some of you have died. It's a part of God's punishment of sin. Yes, says the twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he calleth. The wrath of God manifested in the presence, in the present against sin and evil. But there is something I want to call your attention to on the national and the international level. Indeed, on the level of the whole world. I'm going to take you to the Romans, epistle to the Romans, chapter 1, and I'm going to read to you three verses. Verses 24, 26, and 28. Verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up unto uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. You realize what that means? What he says is this. That because these people didn't glorify God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, because of that, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Go on, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, 
and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. God did that to them. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The apostle says all that to expound what he'd said in verse 18. For the wrath of God is, has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in unrighteousness. He says that's why the ancient world was as it was. That's why paganism was the thing that it was. That's why you Romans were once like that until the gospel came to you. God gave you over. He gave the world over. Mankind rebelled against him, turned its back on him, thought it was wise, thought it understood. God gave them up. He took away his restraining grace and he's allowed them to wallow in their filth. Didn't you feel as I read that terrifying passage that I might very well have been reading a description of the modern world? Of course it is. It's a perfect description of the modern world. And that's why I'm calling your attention to all this this morning. The world is as it is today because it's sin and because God is punishing its sin. You see, for a hundred years and more now, man has been boasting about his cleverness. It all started back there about 1860, 1859, if you like. Charles Darwin and his origin of species. The scientific view. Man no longer a special creation of God, but evolving up out of the animal. They turned their backs on God and on God's view of men and of life and of the world. And they took up their own philosophies. And they arrogantly rebelled against God. And what's happening? With all our education and knowledge and culture, what's happening is that the world has again become, as Paul describes there in that second half of the first chapter of the epistle to the, to the Romans. That's what you're reading of in your newspapers. And now, you see, they're going to make it legal through the Wolfenden Report if they put it into practice. It's all being justified. And it'll get worse and worse. And you can bring in your psychology and build your prisons and do all you like. And you won't touch it. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. It's one of God's ways of dealing with this world. When it doesn't listen to the pleadings of his gospel, God abandons it, withdraws himself, and the world gets into a foul and horrible state that at last it's awakened, and it begins to plead for mercy, and it turns back to God. That's the message of the Bible. And I'm just trying to show you, see, that all this is the one and only adequate explanation of the state of the world at this very moment. I don't hesitate to make this assertion. I believe we've had these two world wars in this century as a punishment to the arrogance and the pride and the vanity and the folly of mankind from about 1864. The whole world had ceased to believe in God. 
He believed that man was immortal, nothing he couldn't do. By acts of parliament he could legislate in paradise, and God wasn't necessary. And all this was dismissed and relegated to some limber, forgotten thing. I believe that God, I say, has withdrawn his restraining grace and is allowing mankind to reap the consequences of its own arrogant, sinful rebellion. God is showing men what he really is. He's showing him his size. He's showing him his moral nature. He's showing him that he's lost and doomed apart from him and his redeeming grace. The world doesn't know about the wrath of God. And as long as it doesn't, things will continue from bad to worse. How idle it is to try and be optimistic. And to say that what we want is a spirit of love and of brotherhood and of friendship. Go back and think of the sacrifices of the Great War. Put that into industry. Nobody will do it. Because man is sinful and selfish. He's a rebel against God. And he's got to be humbled. God's wrath is being revealed in this very generation in which we live. Against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Yes, but it isn't only present. It will be revealed in the future also. It's bad enough now, but there's more coming. What is it? The second coming of Christ. The end of the world. The judgment of the whole universe. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the neglected, the derided Savior, will come back into this world. He'll be riding on the clouds of heaven. And he will come back, I say, to judge the whole world in righteousness. Listen again to 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning to read at verse 7. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. The world ridicules this, I know. They call me a fool for preaching it. Let them say what they like. They ridiculed Noah. They ridiculed Lot, the first Sodom and Gomorrah. They ridiculed John the Baptist. They ridiculed the Son of God. They've ridiculed the prophets always. That doesn't matter. This is God's word and God's truth. Can't you see it, I say, being manifested upon the modern world and upon modern men? Well, if you do see it there, believe the rest. The world is under the judgment of God. His wrath is upon it. And Christ will return and he will destroy all evil and sin and all who belong to that kingdom. There shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Those who belong to the kingdom of Christ and of God shall be made like him and shall reign with him in glory throughout eternity. This, you see, applies to all. The wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. If you were a child of disobedience, it'll come upon you. It'll come upon the mass of them constituting the doomed, the rejected world. It's universal, it is also individual. What then are we to do, says someone? It's quite obvious, isn't it? 
if you realize that all your suffering and pain and agony are due to the fact that you've disobeyed God, that you're a rebel against him in your heart and in your life, if you realize it, and go to him and confess it and acknowledge it, which means repentance, and if you then tell him that you believe his gracious message concerning his only begotten Son, whom he sent into this world to deliver us from this present evil world that is under his doom and damnation, he will forgive you, he will receive you. You see, my friends, we are all of us, as I said at the beginning, either in the world and adopting its mentality and sharing its life, or else we have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And if we are in that kingdom of Christ and of God, we have nothing to fear. Let the third world war come. Let hell come. Yes, let the final judgment come. We are safe. We already belong to him. There's no smugness about that. But if we are not there, I say we are here. We are in the world that is under his wrath. The world that is revealing his wrath more and more. And will lead to that utter, final, ultimate doom. Oh, there's only one thing to do, I say. It's what the apostle tells these Ephesians to do in the next verse. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Don't stay there. Don't share their life. Realize where it's leading to. Turn away. Run from it. Flee from the wrath to come. Humble yourself before God in utter penitence and contrition. Ask him to have mercy and pity upon you. Repent and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will not only be forgiven, you will be given an inheritance in his glorious and everlasting kingdom. Oh, may God open all our eyes to the truth. And may we dedicate ourselves this morning to incessant prayer on behalf of the world that is being deceived by vain words. Christian people, you and I are called to open its eyes. To show them the deceit and the folly and the vanity of their position and what they believe. Let us pray to God then to give us power to do so. In other words, let us pray for a revival. Let us pray that the Spirit of God may so descend upon the church. That she today, as God enabled her to do 200 years ago, and indeed in 1859, to rise up with such power and to proclaim the truth in such clarion calls and terms. That even the dead shall be awake. You can't reason with people who are deceived by the devil. It needs the trumpet call of God. It needs the power of the Spirit. Let us therefore, I say, dedicate ourselves to incessant, continued prayer for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. That we may make the truth known to the blinded peoples, the blinded nations and their leaders. So they may be saved from the wrath to come and begin to live a life to the glory of God.